This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Ambition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas and experience. And just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Brian T. O'Neill, who is the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics. So, Brian, thank you very much for being here. Greetings. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to this. Another podcast host. I'm making a habit of this. There's been several uh, podcast hosts as well, so we're, we can jump into into that. But um, where we always start, Brian, is by asking our guests to give themselves a, a brief introduction into their background and then journey up until, I guess, present day, if uh, if you'd be so kind. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, well, I'm actually, my training is as a professional musician, which is my other career. So I was trained in, as a percussionist and drummer. Uh, and I went to school for that. And on the side, uh, when I was in school, I was doing uh, web design in the mid 90s. Uh, I actually got my first job doing design work through uh, my orchestra, which had just hired an agency to build their first marketing website. And uh, they got me a job. Long story short, they, they got me an uh, internship there, which turned into a job. And so I kind of apprenticed at this uh, studio. And uh, Basically, that was the beginning of, of, of a dual career, uh, what I call a portfolio career, uh, in both of these spaces for about the last 25 years. So uh, for a while, I you know was a full-time employee for, I don't know, about six or seven years and then went, went uh, solo completely and then like 2006. So I've worked in large enterprises, banks. I've worked for a multitude of startups in the Boston uh, uh, startups uh, community, which is largely in the enterprise space. Um, and just done a lot of really interesting work over the years. And then about 10 years ago, I found myself um, in the space of analytics and, and data products. And I, I guess that sort of started in, in financial services. So I worked on a lot of the original uh, trading platforms at, at Quote.com, which is some of the uh, an website owned by Lycos that did a lot of the early uh, streaming applications for traders. Uh, that turned into work at J.P. Morgan Chase and Fidelity Investments, working on all their portfolio websites for uh, for retail customers and things like that. So a lot of numeric information, information design, things like that, and, and eventually moved into more work and uh, software for people who manage data centers. Uh, and so there's a lot of uh, the, the storage and compute industry has a lot of the vendors that do that work. Dell EMC and NetApp and all those companies are have large uh, offices out here in the east coast of uh, Massachusetts and Massachusetts in the East Coast of the U.S. and just kept getting sucked into that work through uh, clients that I had worked with before who kept calling me. A lot of that that crew <laughs> kind of like bounces between the same companies because it's such a niche specialized area of hardware and software engineering and they would pull me in to work on the interfaces for these things because there's a lot of analytics, a lot of data, 
not a lot of signal all the time, but there's a tremendous amount of telemetry that's being collected by these systems. And, and when things go wrong, people need to understand how to fix them. And, and so the tooling I was working on was to really help maintain what I call the oxygen, right? Like people just expect everything to work like we were just joking about, right? And it's someone's job to keep all that infrastructure running, which just feels like it should be free oxygen. But when it goes down, troubleshooting that stuff can be very complicated because of the way the topology is wired and the infrastructure, the little physical wiring. There's a lot of places for failures and things to go wrong and, and troubleshooting that can be hard and analytics is part of that. So once I kind of had done a lot of that work, I, I decided about six or seven years ago that I would focus my design work only in this kind of data product space because I'd seen and heard about this low adoption problem uh, in the analytics space. And that's when I really realized how much analytics was happening, not just for software product companies, which is really where I cut my teeth, but also for internal enterprises had these entire teams dedicated to, to analytics and, and data science and doing predictive uh, analytics and, uh, and all now machine learning and AI and all of this. But the problems were the same. You know, the interfaces are very hard to use. The user experience is usually something what I call uh, it, it's byproduct design, which means the design emerges from a bunch of unintentional choices made by engineers, analysts, data scientists. It's kind of this thing that just pops out the end. And it's just as a result of what everyone else's decisions were. So and the way I talk about this with my audience is that there's no such thing as no design choice. So effectively, anyone that's deciding what another human being is going to experience is a designer. You're just not good at it yet. And you're not applying what we call intention to it. And I don't mean that to be insulting. I just mean, let's stop talking about like designers are these special breed of artists that have this very unique creative skill set that no one else can have. And just accept the fact that we, there's no such thing as a null choice in design. So you're already doing it. Do you want to get better at it so people use your stuff? And the, the reason use your stuff matters, use your data product matters, is you can't possibly get to business value if people do not want to or cannot or do not trust the solution that you've created. So I hear a lot of talk about, and this is kind of my rant, I'm gonna get into my rant, which is pretty clear. Nobody wants your freaking analytics, your AI, your machine learning, nobody wants that stuff. They want the promise of that stuff. They want impact, they want decision support, they want an outcome, an improvement to their life, more courage to make a decision. It's downstream from the thing. And we spend so much time, there's so many vendors talking about all this BS, to be totally honest with you, and it's all about building infrastructure and outputs, models, widgets, tools, dashboards, things, 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 things. And it feels good because we feel like we're making progress if we're writing code, building models, doing stuff, it feels like we're making an impact. But the real work is actually the impact piece. It's not the building stuff, it's the change and the improvement that matters. And you cannot create business value if the humans in the loop don't care. So my whole mission of what I'm trying to do with my work is to help both uh, software companies that are doing analytics and intelligence work, but also uh, enterprise data science and analytics teams that are struggling with this adoption piece, this problem discovery piece, the what do they really need? What do they really want? Because they asked for this and we gave it to them and then they didn't use it. Like it just goes into the dashboard desert, number 4,672 Tableau dashboard, now sitting in the desert, no one gives an SHIT about it. So how do we fix that, right? I'm trying to tell and, and share with my audience that there is a way to do this. There, there are methods that human-centered design can help with, and you can learn these, but you have to care, 
And if you care and you're open to learning how to change the way you work, it's not to become a designer yourself. It's just to learn how to take some of these skills and reduce the time wasted building stuff no one cares about. And so that's kind of what my whole mission is right now is to help leaders in the data world build stuff that matters so that their skills, their talent, their teams, and, and the impact that they have is meaningful because it's it's no fun to work on stuff no one cares about. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess I, I would not be having a lot of fun if I was working in a company as an employee and just none of the stuff ships or no one uses it. We never get any feedback. We don't know what happened with that project. It's just like on to the next thing. It's like the drive-through data model. It's like, it's like go to McDonald's, you order your dashboard. Do you want fries with it? Sure. Tell us the requirements. Done. Next customer. No, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you, you raised so many good points there and thank you very much for that kind of comprehensive um, yeah. kind of start, because I think that sets the scene, <laughs> sets the scene beautifully. I think one yeah. few things that I've picked out there, but first of all, to one mm -hmm. of your latter points, mm -hmm. yes, there's a massive trend now from a talent perspective where people are getting sick and tired of working in organizations where they don't get feedback they don't know whether the project was good bad ugly whether it was used whether it was not where it's gone and feel like it's become a production line so when we speak to people now in the day-to-day -day work that we do it's a we want to find somewhere where our work is impactful where it's valued where it's visible um where it's used all of that type of, of good stuff right which is is really interesting um, I'm keen to jump into a question with you about culture, right? But what I want to first kind of scoot back to is just to get a bit more of an understanding about your business, right? Designing for analytics in terms of the the type of work you do, but the type of customers you've got just, just very quickly. So the audience has got a bit of a grasp on, you know, actually in the weeds, what are you doing day to day within these enterprises that you talk about? Sure. <laughs> One second. I'm going to close my window because I don't want sound coming in. So I just yep. put that there so you know where to make a cut. One second. Yep. Sure. So my work, uh, so it probably helps people to understand at the, at the top level of like kind of who are my clients and what do they look like and what do I do for them? There's, there's kind of a branch at the top and there's two categories. There's going to be people that did come out of the software industry. So these are typically... If it's, a start, if it's a startup, probably a founder. If it's a larger company, it's probably a chief product officer or someone of head of product. Sometimes they have an engineering title. If it's a technical company, they combine engineering and product. But it's someone that has responsibility for the, the value of the product that we're putting out, not necessarily the build of it. And so they usually need help uh, with sales traction or customer retention issues or usability complaints or people leaving to a, another customer because the, the the interface is much easier to use. Sometimes it's like our stuff is sitting in this uh, environment and we know it's not getting used and it's up for renewal and we're really scared they're not gonna renew because we kind of know no one's using this and our champion left, these kinds of problems. And so um, sometimes it surfaces itself as like, our UI is ugly or, or, you know, the sales, our sales team is telling us like people are commenting about how ugly it is. And usually these are trigger words for like, this looks really hard to use, but the vocabulary that is used is usually cosmetic in nature. So they're definitely feeling like this could, our, our, our tool could be easier to use. Uh, the value could be more self-evident. It's too hard before they get value. We want to, we, we think we have this great IP or technology, but they don't get it and they can't see it. 
and, and they're struggling to figure out how do we get that more present earlier on so the value hits them immediately and it's not a hard sell and it's just, we can't live without this, right? That's usually so on the product side and th those can be like data tools, they can be intelligence tools, they can be all the, the, like the types of vendors that are trying to sell into the data science and analytics community, it can be companies like that that need help. So that's that one side. And that's where I kind of started. And, and then as I focused in this whole uh, data product space and my design work, that's where I realized, oh, there's this whole other community, which is people building internal decision support applications for running, lar especially larger businesses, right? They typically need training help. Most of them, it's not so much that they have like a core product or application because they're not usually building commercial products. They're building internal applications for decision making. They're usually looking for training. How do I get my team to get better at this stuff? Because I'm starting to see we're not solving the right problems. Sometimes the business looks, they, they, they look at us as a, as a data widget makers was the way one of my clients recently put it. And he doesn't want his team perceived as that. He, he thinks we could be providing a lot of value because we understand the data, all the data that the company has and how it could be used for, for making better drugs or whatever the thing is that they're trying to do. But they don't get it. And they look at us as, as hands. We're hands to execute whatever they ask for. And instead, we want to be partnering with them. And part of the issue is they don't have the trust there yet because a lot of times they're they're what I, they're addressing what I, this isn't my thing but I love this uh, th this framing they're addressing the presenting problem which is we ask for this and you say yes uh, ask me a couple of questions about features and then you go make it and you don't dig into why they're asking that to make sure that you understand what the downstream thing is and this is like going into the surgeon and saying hey doc my arm hurts can you please give me surgery. No surgeon or doctor is ever going to just cut your arm open because you asked for that. They're going to diagnose the problem. They're going to try to understand how you use your arm and what does it look like to, to have a better life and all these kinds of things. It's like, oh, you're a tennis player. That also tells me some things. And they're going to diagnose that before they prescribe any solution. That diagnosis part is usually lost with the business. And the other thing is lost is sometimes the people asking for the work are not the people using it. So you have a, the department head for sales is asking for a dashboard to see how our sales and our price, are we pricing right? And what's our velocity and all this kind of stuff. But the actual salespeople are doing different work than what the sales manager is doing. And so we don't talk to the users. And this is where the UX piece, UX piece comes in. And UX is just one part of it. I don't, even though that's kind of my, I guess you could say Brian was a UX designer. That's my core. And that, that's true. But I don't even use this word very much anymore because it's short-sighted. It's only, it says design is only about the user experience, but it doesn't care about what the business needs as well. And sometimes those things are at odds with each other. So design really can address both of these things. And we need to be addressing both of those things. So I'm trying to help these, these leaders develop the skills of their people to learn how to understand the user experience by going out and doing the research, shadowing what these people do all day. Like, what's it like to be a salesperson on the road? Like, are you really going to open up a Tableau dashboard or a 20 page PDF when you're going door to door? And I mean, that's a bad example, but you get the idea. It's like, it's so out of context from what these people do. They're, they're just going to go back to doing it the old way. Right. And, yeah. and, and so status quo is your enemy. A lot of the times with analytics, you need to be looking at status quo as the enemy. 
And if you want to make a difference, you need to be better than the status quo. And your solution needs to be so much better that I want to stop doing the old thing and do the new thing. And it's hard to change behavior. But if you fit it into their workflow and you put enough attention into it that it's so obvious why you wouldn't want to do it the old way, you can start having the impact. And when you build that trust, now they're going to come to you and look at you as a partner because they're going to say, hey, you know, Karen's data science team, they get it. They're asking me good questions. They, they, I didn't even know I wanted this other thing until they asked me about it. They delivered something useful to me. They didn't talk to me about what p-values are and model <laughs> degradation and model drift. And like, I don't know what that stuff is, but they got what I needed. And so when they come to me and say, hey, Karen, have you ever thought about building your pricing dynamically instead of letting the salespeople just type in whatever numbers they want? Like we could probably probably give you like a 10 or 20% boost to at least get your accuracy higher and make sure that the sales actually close here. Would you be interested in hearing about that? Guess what? Now you're a partner. Now you're fulfilling the promise of what so many of these leaders have promised with machine learning and AI and analytics and all this kind of stuff. And they're going to be willing to, to take that phone call and listen to you as a partner because you've delivered something that's actually valuable and useful to them. So mm-hmm. that's my kind of yeah. rant on that. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Look, uh, Brian, I uh, I love your passion for this subject. It's uh, <laughs> it's it really is inspiring. So so look, yeah. you spoke earlier as you started to talk about adoption, right? And we hear and see and talk about this stuff all the time, myself included, mm-hmm. right? Around sure. especially internally within organisations and enterprises about sure. why there's so much of this failure right in quotation marks or 85 percent of these projects aren't delivering as much value as they're supposed to and Mm -hmm. you know the buzzwords that get thrown out of that conversation are culture literacy strategy those types of things right we've been led to believe might might be a bit strong but that's the type of conversation we're having right that the culture is the reason why we're not getting the value that we were hoping for effectively Mm -hmm. but i guess your point there and i'm not saying that you disagree with that comment necessarily but you're kind of saying there's more to this than just people aren't using it because the culture of the business doesn't allow them to or doesn't encourage them to right you're kind of saying adoption can be better because the product can be better the way the product's designed the usability of the product all of that stuff feeds into this same conversation right yeah i have a couple like comments just generally on what you said. So my, my, my general field of data literacy is, yes, it's, and, and I know this, especially in the United States, there, there a lot of people do not read charts and graphs and things like this well. And part of this is like, well, do they really need to be doing that for their job? And it's like, is there a way for us to help them that doesn't require them to do that type of work? And how much effort have we put into that? So it's kind of like, have we really put in the effort to design something well for them? Or did we just say, you need to catch up with us us that knows you need to catch up and know what we know to use the things that we make because it's not our job to quote dumb it down for you that's one mentality i don't hear this too much and it's probably because the people that come to me are already bought into the ideas i'm talking about so maybe it self-selects them out of it but data literacy i guess one of my problems with this is that sure sounds like uh the that's that sounds like a framing which is it's everyone else's job to change It's someone else's problem. Data literacy is something other people need to do with no fault on us, no responsibility on us, even though we're the data experts. 
It's mm-hmm. everyone else's problem to catch up. And it just doesn't, it doesn't sit with me correctly. And I'm not saying there's never a time for that. But I do feel like there's a little bit of a BS cop out here going on sometimes, which is we don't really know how to make it any easier because we didn't spend time on that. Or it, part of it is they just don't know what they don't know, that that some of this stuff could be made easier. And like maybe you don't need to send them a chart at all. Maybe there's a you send them a text message and you tell them turn right or drive your truck this way instead this week, or here's your routing for the day, and you don't need to use an application to check which way to deliver your packages this week. It's just the app just tells me where to go. You know, if you think about, you know, your delivery drivers or something like this, right, you don't need to go plan out your routing using charting and and stuff. And here's why we're telling you to turn right. And we looked at the propensity of the blah, 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 and the current traffic and this zone and the recommendation for the model is 70% sure you should turn right. Like what? Like they don't care about that, right? They're just going to like drive their truck the way they always drive it. And oh, well, you can help me get off work sooner because I get paid a day rate. I don't care. Like if I can get my job done sooner, I go home and I get still paid the same. I want to use your thing. I don't care how it works. Right. So data is behind all this kind of stuff. I don't think a lot of teams are, are looking at the work that way. So that's one part of it. The other part of the, the, the work is and this is something I try to help in, in my training is some of this is con- is consultation skills. You know, I, I've taken the stuff that I've learned from consulting, from marketing, from sales, being a business leader and added that to all my experience as a designer and user experience person and realize that, you know, some of this gets to how do we fail faster if necessary and understand where the blockers are before we commit huge investments of time, money and resources to projects. So if like kind of my dream world is like these teams of data scientists and, and analytics professionals who are design thinkers and they're approaching the, 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 the things they're building as what I call data products, they're going into the world with that stuff. They're thinking about prototyping fast, figuring out where things are gonna fail fast if necessary, escalating to the right people that, you know, we can do this, we can build the outputs. But the problem is, yes, there is a cultural blocker here. This team does not care about the business's objectives to, you know, reduce factory operations time or increase vehicle throughput on the factory line. They don't care about the shared outcome that the business wants. So they're never gonna use the tooling that we built, even though the tooling is technically right. And I call this technically right, effectively wrong. You can ship it and it's technically right. It works well. The model is accurate, but it's effectively wrong because it doesn't create the change that we wanted. Can we figure this out sooner than later? And I, and I know some data teams are like leaders are probably thinking that's not my job. That's change management. That's someone else's job. Look, I, I don't know whose job it is but I want to save you the time and frustration of wasting time building stuff that no one gives at SHIT about. And so if you can help surface where those points of friction are and say, hey, dear CEO, this whole AI transformation initiatives, it's going to die right here because the management of that team doesn't care about increasing factory throughput. They don't care. What do you want to do about it? Do you want to proceed with this? Because you're going to have a really nice model sitting in a box on a wall. That's what you're going to get here. How do we make this better? Do we need yeah. to change the training? Do we need to change the people? But like, let's bring it there. And so if we can hit on those human, the, the human reasons these fail. And, and I know this is probably like, oh, it's not my job. We're here to build models. We don't have time for that and all that. 
Well, fine, but then you're gonna keep replaying yesterday, which is building crap that no one uses. So if you wanna build stuff that matters, you might have to spend some time here or hire the, the staff and the expertise to do this work and make them part of your team. I, I, I don't know whose job it is, but I, I think if you, it starts with somebody and somebody has to lead that effort. Yeah, but I, I agree with you. And I've, I've openly said on this podcast several times, just using examples, right? But ultimately when, when it comes to this stuff and it comes to adoption, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a reason why these people in these teams are going to use it, right? Yep. Beyond for, this might be the cynic in me, right? And I'm sure that for all intents and purposes, most people would like to do a good job for the business that they work for. Right. But for example, if you've got John who sits in the accounting department, who's been at the company for 25 years, then all of a sudden you throw something at him and say, look, you need now to change this and do this, this, and this. And the reason for that is that it's going to help the business do X, Y, and Z and make more money. Yeah. Well, for John, he's probably thinking, I've, you know, so I've got to go out of my way to do something different, which is possibly more work. And I'm not too sure how to do it. And there's nothing really in it for me to do. You know what I mean? There's this whole sure. conversation Incentives. that goes on. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's I'm completely with you on that. So look, obviously the whole piece around this and d design kind of conversation, Brian, is is kind of very relatable into the data product world, right? Because that's effectively where you live and where you sit. Obviously what I see across the industry at the moment is this kind of product way of thinking whether you know we're talking about data product today or as a product whatever the the sure. kind of analogy um that seems to be allowing teams to become or data analytics teams more specifically to to have a little bit more success with getting that adoption and buy-in and maybe even showing value quicker and showing things like roi a little bit more effectively rather yeah. than these you know five-year centralized transformation programs that some sure. businesses have tried to go on with data analytics but sure. what why, why do you think that is why now are we seeing this whole data products thing really start to to take off across the industry you know i it's something I've been talking about for a long time. I, do, I don't know why it seems like it's resurfacing here. And I, I actually have some specific memories of when I started my business um, about even the language of using this term data product. And like I, uh, another firm, a, a data science firm that I know here in Boston, um, he had said, yeah, we, we looked at that too. And our marketing team did a bunch of research. We're not going to use that language because we don't think people really knows what they don't know what it is. And like, they kind of strayed away from it. I kind of doubled down on it because I come from the world of product. And I think after 25 years, data teams can learn a lot about how mature software product companies operate the teams, the skills, the way they approach solving problems. There are mature processes for doing that. I'm not talking so much about the technical work, but I'm talking about the getting people to use it work, the value work, the adoption, the usability, the utility. And design is always a part of that. And almost every major uh, software company, design, product, and engineering are the trifecta. Engineering may need a data scientist, but it, it means there's a technical lead, there's a product slash business lead, and there's a design and user experience lead. That is the trifecta on which these companies stand. Everything else is kind of secondary support, domain expertise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I know some people say, well, it's not software and all this. It's like, well, the track record for data does not speak well. I mean, it's just, I have this joke article on my website, which is like, we've all heard the 8% failure rates of data science and analytics, blah, blah, blah. I just started putting every one of these surveys I could find into one page, and they all basically say the same thing. And even I think the latest one from Tom Davenport says it's getting worse. 
we're not getting better. We're actually getting worse. <laughs> so it's, it's continuing to go down. Um, but I do think that some people are starting to, and it might be because they're seeing how other teams deploy stuff at scale, faster, better, usable, and product is a big part of that. I don't think this whole, and I'm going to be totally candid with you, Kyle, I don't have a super great definition for data product. I, I tell you what, I can tell you what my thinking is about it, not so much the definition of it, because it, it can mean different things to different people. But for me, the product approach means we care about the humans in the loop, first of all. That's the, the core of it, is that the humans in the loop matter. And if, if we're ignoring them, we're not doing product because you can't do product without humans because humans are the ones that use the product. We're not building these things for machines, right? But at its core, it's two things. Product has this idea that it's never done. It's not a project. It's a product, which means it's on a scale, it's evolving over time. It may mean we ship something small and meaningful and maybe we make it better. Maybe we don't. We move on to the next thing. But we don't think of it as like having a hard and stop black and white endpoint. It's an evolution over time. We're iterating. We're getting feedback from the people that matter. And we're building that feedback into this, the, the tooling and the applications that we're creating. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this is for, and, and when I talk about this, I'm talking to non-commercial software companies. I'm talking to the, in, the enterprise data science and analytics teams right now that build internal tooling and tool, uh, dashboards, applications, things like this. The second part is how good it would it have to be if people had to pay to use it? Let's pretend this thing, this decision support tool that we're giving to the tri the people that run the drug trials for our company, which is what everything hangs on. The drug could be great, but we got to hit our trial milestones and blah, blah, blah. We're building this tool. How good would it have to be if they had to pay us to use it? Like our salaries, our whole thing depended on our colleagues using this to make decisions. How would we approach the work differently? Those are the two things that I, I really think about because that second one requires there really has to be good value here in order for someone to pay us. And even though they're not literally going to pay us, a, you know, $100 a month per license seat or whatever, it's the thinking and the approach there that, that, that I think really matters. And so you can get into the weeds about, well, what is the approach of product and design as applied here? That's a whole nother discussion. But those at the high level, that's the thinking that I I think teams will see better results if they adopt that thinking. And guess, and it, Kyle, it's not for everybody. Like this, you talked about like the status quo enemy, like what's in it for me, incentives. And yeah, it's true. A lot of people don't want any risk. Like I don't really want to stick my neck out. This episode, you should hang up right now. If you're listening to this episode and you, <laughs> you're comfortable with that, there's nothing wrong with that. But my message is not for you. My message is, is for leaders that want to make a difference here. They want to create better change, better results, better value. They want to build things that matter using data. I'm talking to you and to your teams, the ones that truly want to be innovative. And guess what? Innovative means you're trying stuff. You don't know if it's going to work. That's the art. The art of it is that we don't have a guarantee it's going to work. And, and some of this work is hard. And we don't get to hide behind the requirements and just exactly what they ask for. We give it to them. Done. If you want to do that, again, hang up because you're not going to hear anything interesting from me because I'm talking out on Mars here. But some of you are Martians like me, I hope. And that's that's the audience I want to talk to is the people that really want to make a difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've said, you know, over and over again on this podcast, Brian, that um, 
you know, businesses started on this journey, right? And there was this big kind of a, a big bang where data analytics, AI, all these buzzwords were coming at us left, right, and center. And it became sure. a became an obligation. Like businesses scrambled to start doing this stuff because if they weren't seen to be doing this stuff, it was almost like they were uncool, right? Or they were behind the curve or whatever the yeah. case may be. And that that in my eyes kind of forced all of these type of issues that are now catching us up in terms of the whole value piece because you know okay we assembled 50 data scientists we started building all these products but it's done on poor data they didn't think about the change management at the start they didn't think about the people in the business they didn't think about the users and you know all of a sudden you've got these teams of people you've bought all of this technology you've built all of these models and dashboards and whatever the case may be and all of a sudden now you're like okay no one's using it, uh, you know, and nothing's changing. We spent a load of money. So it's yep. it's a really interesting, really interesting conversation. Yep. The product thing is fascinating in my eyes because I, I see businesses starting to do this and they're really starting to move the needle. Mm-hmm. What yep. I'd love to know from you is what constitutes a good or bad product? And obviously I know you're going to say one that gets used, I'm sure, but um, kind of, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the kind of meat on the bones around that, what's, you know, how do you, how well, do you speak to your clients about that? To, to be honest, getting used is actually not, not necessarily the barometer of success. Uh, usage can be a tax, hmm. right? Using the dashboard can be a tax because who wants to log into a dashboard? And I'm going to repeat what I told you at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> Nobody wants your machine learning, your analytics and your AI. They want something downstream from that. They want a promise that is embedded in that request. And this is the same thing from the executive team. AI represents a promise of some type of value that they have in their head. And if you don't uncover that, you you stand a good chance of not creating the right thing. And you might spend a whole bunch of money and maybe you ran a bunch of experiments. And I'm not saying there's not a time and a place to play with new technology, to exercise the team, but there's a way to do that like on low risk projects, small projects. Don't try to change the sales organization or the marketing all of marketing's campaign spending for next year, we're going to roll it over to automation. No, you you say, hey, could we spend 1% of your budget using machine learning, like blah, blah, blah. Could we carve out a, just a little silo over here for three months and run some experiments here? We're trying to see if we can make an impact for you guys later, but we want to do that in a controlled way. That's if you really need to go say that we've done something with machine learning, fine, find a small machine learning project, experiment, get some wins on the board and build the trust, right? But in terms of what makes a good product, well, the first thing when I talk to my clients, if, if I'm gonna be working on the product and not so much in the training side of my, my business, I wanna know how are we going to measure what good is and how will we know when it's done? So let's jump to the end of the project, which is the same way I approach the design of these things. We don't start with data. We always work backwards from the humans in the loop. We start with what they're gonna wanna do, what do they need, what are their challenges, and then we work backwards and figure out what could we make with the raw ingredients that we have. And maybe we can't make something useful, but at least now we have a clear target for where we need to go. And we're not just gonna try to build something and hope and jam it down someone's throat and hope that they're gonna use it. So I always start at the end, and I start at the end with the stakeholders too on the business result side. So a lot of this, and this is, this is ongoing conversation, and sometimes this changes as we get going, but it's really important to diagnose this and get shared success criteria. And this usually means a set of outcomes that have metrics or some type of KPI, some type of criteria. It, it has to be measurable. 
And some of this feels like it can't be measurable. And my and Doug Hubbard wrote a great book on how to measure anything. I had him on my podcast, and it's excellent because the way he frames this is look like um, customer, you know. We, we're seeing bad brand traction or like we want this to impact our brand or you, you get some vague thing like that. Well, here's the deal. The only way that they know that the, the brand value of what we're doing is bad right now is because something somebody can observe something in the real world that says that it's bad. If you can observe the badness, then we should be able to quantify what goodness is, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be coming to you and saying that. It is difficult sometimes to do that, and it takes going back and forth and asking and digging and asking why and, and doing what I call a probative conversation. And you may feel like you're asking questions you're not supposed to, but I think most senior stakeholders want to be challenged. They want to have staff that are thinking this way. They, they, they need help thinking this stuff through. So it's actually, the way I see it, it's like, it's in your head, it's not on paper. My job is to is to interview you and use the techniques that I have to get it out of you in a way that we both can write it down and it's shared. Once we know what the success criteria is, then we can go build something that matters and we know how to measure it. And and from a from a tooling part, usability testing is one of the core ways that I measure this. And this is like literally sitting down the people that are going to use the tool, the application, the dashboard, the whatever it is, and we give them a set of tasks to do. And we decided up front with our stakeholders, what are the tasks we should give them? And do you agree that if we tested them and asked them these five or 10 tasks here, that if they got a good score on that, that would mean we're on track. Do you agree with that? And if they say, yes, that I would have a lot of confidence. Great. Let's bring in five or 10, you know, sales engineer. I don't know, whoever the staff marketing campaign managers or whatever the heck it is, run them down the dashboard task or the tooling task score them and let's see what's wrong. Let's get feedback. And you can do that well before you have working code. You can do this with mockups and low fidelity prototypes to validate that you're, you're, you're on track and we don't just do this once. So there's a literal way to score the design. It's, it's not a subjective thing. This user experience thing is not subjective. It can be objectively measured and that helps us know if we're on the right track. And, and getting technical people to watch this and participate in this is really important and it will change things like you will not believe. There's nothing like watching one human being sitting and using something made by a team of others, watching them go through it, talking it out loud. And, and this is typically how we do this. So if you haven't seen this before, you might have someone like me, what we call a facilitator, Kyle's the user, you're using this dashboard to make your decisions about how am I gonna spend my campaign budget next month, right? Maybe that's the scenario. And I give you some tasks. And in, the, in our observation room, we might have 10 engineers, analysts, data scientists, maybe a product owner, watching and observing and taking notes about the experience. And just getting them to build that empathy for Kyle. And when Kyle's like, look, I don't know, this is like way too complicated. I'm just like, I get $5 million to spend next quarter. I'm just gonna do it, like we were fine. Last week was, last quarter was fine. Like this is, I don't know what to do. And when you hear that and you spent six months, when that team spent six months and Kyle's ready to walk away from the screen, that's when people start to realize like, oh, this stuff really matters. And like, it's no longer for the business, the marketing team. There is no business. The business is a bunch of human beings, a bunch of marketers who are real people that have incentives and they care about stuff. And when you see that frustration there, that's what drives people to change and the conversation begins to change. Oh gosh, we shouldn't have done it that way. And 
They really need to be compared to last quarter in order to know what to spend next quarter. But we didn't give them any historical stats. We just gave them a prediction for next quarter. So like, what if we did this? What if we did that? And all of a sudden, the gears are turning and you can see what happens even just in the observation room. And sometimes we have to slow that down. Like in the <laughs> UX research world, we're actually trying to remind people in observation, we're not here to solve all the problems we see. We're just here to observe and then we're here to interpret what we observe because interpretations and observations are different. Then we will go into the fun stuff of like, how could we make it better? Because the problem is the teams start redesigning it in the observation room. Now they're not paying attention to Kyle and Kyle's given us all this value bomb feedback because we're finally getting to see a real person talk about this. So that's kind of, that's like a fun problem to have though, is when you see the light switch and it's no longer about hiding in my cube, writing code, writing models, but now it's like, like Kyle's suffering here and like that makes me look bad either it makes me look for it bad for my job or I feel bad for Kyle but there's some now a human connection here and yep. when that changes like bang now you're on track now now the team has a different kind of mojo and juice behind it and and that's that's what I like to see as a way to measure this stuff to, to measure a good product nice nice in terms, so there'll be people out there, Brian, that are listening to this thinking, you know, sure. I've probably already got one eye on the prize in terms of maybe us going down this product route is the is the right thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. Where, in your opinion, or what have you seen work in terms of, first of all, the structure of a product team? Like, what should a product team be made up of, right, in terms yeah. of it being, um, you know, fully functioning and getting the best out of it? And then what about its place in the business like where does it sit because you know as with most data teams often they're well supposed to be enterprise wide right they're supposed to be self-fulfilling over that business but often doesn't quite sure. happen that way so what's your what's your kind of take on that sure i i think this space is evolving so much that there, there's not a there's not going to be a single recipe for where it sits in the organization because sometimes i know data teams are serving a product owner or a product manager who's who's owning the product for the customer. And I'm talking about product owner or product manager of the data product of the solution that we're making for that other product owner who may or may not be managing a digital anything, right? Yep. It, it depends. And it also depends on whether that business sponsor is really the point. Can they and should they play the role of the product owner for the technology piece or should they be focusing on their their customer facing thing i think it depends and this is why I, the better framing that i have right now to tell you is i care more about the skill sets being represented at the table than i do about job titles and this is why i don't care if the designer happens to have a title of data scientist i don't care as long as the the hats the right hats are worn at the right time and the, that trifecta is what we talked about there needs to be someone who's basically the, the product owner, someone who has a responsibility for the value creation, for the adoption, for understanding the problem space and articulating that to the team in a way that's actionable and measurable and everybody understands why are we here? What are we doing? That's what that person needs to do. The, the second role or skill set is the design piece. At some point, the user is going to come into play here. 
And if we don't get it right for them, we can't fulfill the business objectives that were there. So who are all the people in the ecosystem? And there might be multiple different people at different points in the journey to get to the outcome we want. There could be information being exchanged between teams. There could be someone at the very end who finally pulls the trigger and they change the knob from seven to nine on the factory floor based on all this other stuff that happened. We That person needs to be aware of that entire process here. And yes, I know there's change management teams and all this kind of stuff, but a lot of that is about risk management and all the risk checks and all this kind of stuff. And it's not about what's right for the humans in the loop. So yes, you probably need to learn how to dance with that organization as well. But the design approach is, very, is, is, is quite a bit different there. It's not about checking all the risk and de-risking the entire process because the problem with that is that's where you run into incentive issues and people check out because they don't care that the business has a bunch of risk on this thing they care about their personal risk right so there you may need to dance with that organization and the third thing is the technical lead on the project which might be more than one technical lead maybe you have a, an engineer and you have a data scientist because those aren't the same people i don't care who that is but that's someone who can speak to what do we have to work with? What is feasible in the short term? Could What does a small increment of work look like to serve what the product owner said is our objectives? Those are, the, at the nutshell, the three skill sets that I want to see. And again, I don't care what the job title is. I just care that the skill sets are represented there because some of these things can be learned and they can be trained. So I wouldn't worry so much about the job titles. But if you wanted to go hire these people, I would be poaching product managers from technical uh, enterprise, um, you know, data types of startup software companies and pulling them into your organization and saying, we need this mojo that you have, but we need to serve that in our internal tooling. But we want that approach. That's who you'd get. The set, the designer, if you want that, we call them product designers or user, user experience designers. Those are sort of interchangeable. Product usually means you have a better sense of the entire business landscape as well as, and not just the user, because again, the user is only kind of half or one third of the solution, but that would be the skill set you would be going to look at. And yes, there's all the ancillary domain experts and BI developers and, and engineers and analysts. And there, there's a surrounding ecosystem. And I call that like the inner ring stakeholder. And then you have your outer ring stakeholders. The, these are the core makers here. And of course, the final, the fourth person here is just kind of a given, but this is the users and the stakeholders, right? They are always included here, but they're coming and going in and out of the project as we work. But they're, they're so they're, team members, but they're not part of the, the making team. They're part of the feedback team, right? So we're constantly involving them. We, we don't ever go off into a closet, work for six months, and then come back. That is a recipe for a disaster. So those are the kind of the skill sets that I think need to be there to, to do this work. And where to place it in the organization, I would say start with wherever it's going to get traction and then figure out the best place to put it and be ready to change that. And maybe it means you're going to have a bunch of disruptive changing. But tell the team, we don't know where to put this. We are starting <laughs> with this until we get better feedback. There's a better way to do it. So instead of spending nine months to analyze where to put the team, we're starting here. And we may move you. So get ready. Like, that's the adventure we're going on. That's nice. how I would approach that. Nice, nice. Um, talk us through the kind of, I guess, relationship, if you want to call it that, between... UX and then data visualization because I imagine there's more sure. to it than that. But for non-data people or general yeah. users or people sure. probably like me 
right? I'd yeah. say user experience that comes down to how it looks and how it works. But I'm sure, uh, well, in fact, I know for a fact because I've seen a lot of your LinkedIn stuff about <laughs> about this sure. topic. Hence, why I'm asking you. So, uh, to talk us talk us through that, would you? Sure, sure. I, I think the easiest way to think of it is um, I I see data visualization as a as a subspecialty of of product design. And generally, or we can we can use product and user experience interchangeably for this conversation. Data viz, which is really even a subset of UI design, user interface design, data viz being a charting and data specialization within that, that is a subset of it. It's not the whole job, it's part of the job. So it's necessary, especially for more complex data tools. That skill set is definitely needed. However, you can properly visualize a data set that does nothing to help someone make a decision. And that's where the problem is here. Yes, it's the right academic charting choice for this situation. However, nobody cares. They're <laughs> not going to make a decision with it. And I don't mean to insult that work. I'm just saying that I think we get so lost sometimes in the chart choices and all that, like, like, well, let me know when the data set is ready and then we'll figure out how to visualize it and we'll do all the, the right data viz stuff that we read in the books and went to this, the, the training and all this kind of stuff. Great. The user experience designer is looking and I, I kind of think of it as like data viz is like that snapshot in time and, and I'm holding my hands up like making a box here. User experience people are looking at this temporal line. Time is traveling, right? And this box is just one point in that timeline. What is the design of the entire experience? Because design happens over time. User experience happens over time. It doesn't happen right now and then it's done most of the time. Okay, so where were they before Kyle sat down to look at the marketing spend dashboard? What was he doing before? Why is he here now? Why did he open Tableau? And when he's done, what constituted done and where is he going? And is he making a decision? And what tool is he making that decision in? And is you have to send it to somebody else and like, what does that journey look like? And we have a tool for this called journey mapping. And in order to fill out a journey map to understand this, we have to do research and interview Kyle to understand what it's like to be Kyle doing his marketing, forecasting, spending stuff, right? This is where we start to see what the experience is and where stuff dies and where like Kyle rolls his eyes and says, oh, I hate this is like the end of the month. I hate this report. I got to do this thing again. <laughs> And, when, and, and so this is what my, my business coach calls emotionally charged language. This is things we, we want to listen for this emotionally charged language when we're doing research because Kyle just gave us a clue. Like if I could get rid of that feeling Kyle has, he would probably say, wow, this data team makes good stuff for me because I hate this report I have to do every month. All of a sudden, the conversation is not about data viz now. It's about that pain that you have and seeing if we can can remove that as part of this project. This is what user experience people are looking at. How, what does it mean to give Kyle a better um, uh, an outcome? If we could make, let me reframe it. If we could make Kyle's life better, what would that look like? And really it's literally getting down to just like, how do we make Kyle's life at work a little bit better? That's what the user experience professional is, is hopefully looking at. Sometimes they get lost in the tools of design and all this kind of stuff too. But that's what you should be hiring for is someone that is on that mission. Yeah. And then I guess, data is part of that, you know, yeah. it may or may not be part of that, but it's not all of it. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah. I guess on that concept of finding the pain point and trying to, you know, build a product that provides a solution to that pain point or, you know, whatever the case may be along that journey. Right. Um, 
I guess that becomes complex because really for these teams, I guess their job is to provide these products that help the business to achieve their goals, right? So there's a whole host of appeasing the stakeholders and the business leaders, the executives within that. But the people that will be using the tool, as you mentioned earlier, are often different people, right? So I guess that's difficult to to navigate through. I presume how how yeah. how, how do you kind of talk through that? Well, again, this gets back to what are what are the defined outcomes that the business stakeholders want, and how will we measure that? And do we agree that the humans in the loop have anything to do with that? And I think that these companies know that it depends. Our staff, our employees, are a big part of any of this stuff making any difference at all, right? So if you can tie back the business objectives to how we're going to measure it, and the measurement has something to do with the usability and the utility here, because that's where things can die, then you can get that agreement that like, great, I know that the VP of whatever is owning this project and they own the business responsibility, but we, including them, have uh, have understood that it's the frontline salespeople, it's the marketing campaign spender people, that's the end of the road. And if we don't get it right for them, everything else fails. But we have to have that conversation, identify these people. And guess what? Sometimes we don't know who the right people are because the org is so big that we actually haven't figured out who these linchpins are in this. And I I just heard this interesting thing. Where was it? Some podcast where this, uh, oh, it was about the... um, this whole the, the healthcare. Um, why did you know that when the U.S. healthcare portal went down, when we finally had national healthcare and the whole system broke, and they had to call in the dream team from Fang companies, right, and fix this? And I think it was the guy that ran that. But he said, "Go find my L sixes." And what he meant was like, "Go find the person that's six tiers down that actually knows what's really going down on the floor, like in the code, what is wrong." The go find me the L six. And in the same way, that using that same thinking here, the linchpins can be the people that are going to spend the money on the ad campaigns all the way down their junior marketing people or whatever. I don't know who they are, but that when we get to that point, and this is what UX researchers and professionals spend a lot of time doing the enterprises, digging through the organization to get access to these people and try to help the business realize this is the linchpin. They're right here. This is where it all fails. All this tool, all the promise of this thing you're making, it all dies or succeeds right here with this human being. If we don't get it right here, it's just baloney PowerPoints and just risk mitigation and all this meetings and nonsense stuff. And it really just boils down to like, does this person care? Do they care? Do they get value? Do they find this to be an actionable insight, decision-making help that they need that takes away the risks, that takes away the fear? That's where it ends or succeeds. We have to build from that. That's the human-centered design approach. That's the way designers think about the world. We don't think of it the way a lot of data teams and big enterprises do because we know that the humans in a loop are going to kill it or make it work. So let's yep. go to them. And, and yep. but, but sometimes the management needs to understand what those those markers are and they need to understand that's how we're approaching it. And that might take some change because especially if you don't come from the software perspective, I mean, this is why you hear Musk and so many leaders are talking about, it's about the product, stupid. Like (laughs) go talk to your people, go talk to your customers, get in front of them. And it's like they get rid of all the baloney and they realize that at the last mile, it's about those human beings and everything else is kind of there to support that. They get it. 
I think a lot of companies don't. We just get in this abstract thinking about departments and like, fuck, departments are not people. People are people. There's no such thing as the marketing department. There's just the marketing team of people. They're real people. Yep. And I'm not picking on marketing here. It could be anybody. The point being, it's about the humans. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So go and find the business objective. You work backwards from there to figure out who are the people on the ground that will either use or not use this yep. and build a product that is valuable for them in that process. Yep. Sounds really simple, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, but yeah. also, how are we going to measure it? And yep. what does success look like? Yeah. That and, yep. and then the tech team should be looking at how do we build the smallest version of this possible to test if we're learning that we're on the right track. Do not go build the whole thing. Build yep. the forty percent accurate model, and then find out does it matter if the model is off sometimes? Is there any risk? Maybe not. Okay, ship the forty percent version. Then say, do you want to spend three more months getting it twice as accurate? Here's what you get for that. Here's what it costs us to do it. But right now we've shipped this and 40% accurate, dear data scientists listening to this, 40% accurate is an F in school. And in business, it may be a complete win. You may <laughs> have completely changed the, the organization. You may have made people's lives better. You may have made the company a lot of money. So we need to get out of this, this thinking that model accuracy is the way we're scoring the world. That's the game in the academic game of data science, but that's not how the rest of the world that we're working with our teams are thinking about it, especially the business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree with that. Um, two things, Brian, before we wrap up, because I'm conscious of time. So first of all, design versus design thinking. Again, I've seen you talk about this, but um, uh, yeah. I found it fascinating. Same, talk, talk us through uh, it. Same thing. Yeah. Here, here's my point on that. I, design thinking, uh, I, I've read some books about this. I'm sure some others have. I think this. I think I even read this that this 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 term was created to invite others to come into the world and say you don't have to wear a black turtleneck and have cool sun cool glasses and be this artsy person. You can just do the design thinking part, and it kind of says this is for you too. And I actually love that from a marketing perspective about how to talk about it. I'm a fan of just calling it design. And the reason why is I want design doing. I don't want just design thinking. I want doing happening. And so that's why in my training, it, it's eight weeks. But really what it is, is eight weeks of time to work on doing it in the wild. It's not eight weeks of curriculum. It's I want you doing it in the wild because that's how you're going to learn it. You're not here to think about it for eight weeks. We're here to learn just enough to go out and start doing it. And it's the same with riding a bicycle. You don't. This is what Seth Cote, I love his framing. Like you want to learn how to ride a bike. Don't buy a book. You got to yeah. get on the bike and start doing it. And that's how we're going to learn how to do it. And it's the same thing with design. So, yes, there's some thinking, but I want you doing it. And that's yeah. why I typically just call it design. And, and that's and I, I pay the price sometimes because I know for some of my clients, they can't get out of the data viz, the cosmetic layer, how it looks. And that's OK. That's that's where a lot of people experience design for the first time. And I think companies like Apple and, and Uber have started to help people understand what the next level of that looks like. It's not just how it looks, it's how it works. It's the whole experience of taking a car, a taxi, versus taking an Uber. The entire experience is different. That is, that is a very intentionally designed experience. And I think people are starting to have a better understanding of that. And that's why I continue to just call it design and not design thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, cool. That makes, uh, makes perfect sense. So to finish them, I'm keen to get your thoughts on this because you've covered 
I guess we've covered a lot about all of the <laughs> all sure, of sure. the ongoings in the industry that um, are yeah. probably causing those problems. But what's yeah. the from a non-technical perspective? Because I think, largely speaking, most data analytics teams are, are pretty good at building the thing that they ask to build. Right, you know yeah, the the, yeah, the te- yeah. technological piece is is, is okay. Yeah. I think for for the most part. Yeah. What's the number one non technical kind of challenge, obstacle, hurdle to achieving true value with data that you kind of see kind of happening over and over again? Um, the the makers don't really know what success looks like from the perspective of the people that paid for it and the people that are going to use it. They only know what it looks like from the quote requirements document and the give them what they ask for part, because that's the type of, uh, frankly, I think this comes from the way we're schooling people and the way we test people. And we, we, our whole school system is designed around factory workers, building compliant factory workers. Did you get an A on the test? Did you do exactly what you were told? Well, mm. unfortunately, that's not the work here. A lot of the times that's not enough to just focus on the execution piece. And guess what? Some of your team, that's what they're going to be good at. And they're not going to be, this is just not going to gel with them. And you have to decide, fine, do I compartmentalize those people, keep that talent and and just, I need to upskill other talent or do I have the wrong DNA in my team? I don't know the answer to that, but I've been telling you, if you only have people that are focused on execution of whatever they're told to do, good luck because it's so rare you're going to get like a data scientist CEO who knows perfectly how to outline exactly what they want. That's like asking the homeowner to be an architect. I would like the homeowner to be an architect so I, as the builder, can build the perfect house and they don't need to know. They they, they already know about code, zoning violations, uh, regulations, fire code, uh, usability, light requirements, ceiling heights, accessibility, universal design, on and on and on and on, building materials, asbestos, environmental concerns. (laughs) What? Like, you would never expect a homeowner to know all of that stuff. That's why we have architects, right? It's the same thing here. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, look. Brian, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. As I said earlier, I absolutely love your passion for for this topic. Um, if you. anyone wants to reach out, get hold of you, got you know, wants to pick your brain about anything they've heard today, is interested in working with you, wants to uh, sure. maybe tune into your pod, uh, podcast, where where can they find you? Sure. Yeah. One link, uh, designingforanalytics.com. That has the podcast, which is called Experiencing Data. Um, my insights mailing list is kind of my home base for publishing all my thinking. So I send out stuff about once a week, sometimes more often, my writing, my articles, where I'm speaking, things like that. Uh, if you want to work with me, there's also a, a literally a work with me link right on the in the nav bar there. So you can learn about my training programs and my design UI UX audits and all the different things and ways I work with uh, teams uh, there. So that's the best ways. I'm called Rhythm Spice on Twitter. I'm not super active there. LinkedIn is where I'm much more active. So you can find me, uh, Brian T. O'Neill on LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, Brian, thank you very much. I wish you continued success and um, keep up the great work. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure being here. And congrats on your success too with the uh, with the podcast. I saw you you hit some rankings there. That's awesome. Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't I don't know who comes up with these rankings, but we'll uh, we'll take oh, it. Oh, that was me. That for I sure. <laughs> yeah, you, I think you're, yours was you're 14. Above. I was 13. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, uh, great to speak to you, Brian. We'll speak to you soon. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. 
I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.